to another episode of the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Callum Jaspin, and today, as we hit the final stretch of the year, Pitch Frenzy begins to wrap up, while Tourism Australia has launched Ruby the Kangaroo to the world. TikTok tells the C it's not a social media platform. Nine stops printing newspapers in Tasmania and a couple of interesting other Asian storylines. Finally, Kathleen Enright, global MD of Publicis's creative sustainability consultancy, Salter Baxter, and its local CEO, Sky Lambley, joined the podcast to chat about the recent launch of the almost 25-year-old company and why now's the time to start baking in true sustainable practices into your brand strategies. Joining me today is Acting Managing Editor, Andrew Banks. Hey, Banksy. Hey, Cal, you said baking. I think I might do some baking. Journalist Kalila Welch. Hey, Kalila, just back from Vietnam. Yes, looking very tanned, apparently. Yeah, well, that was—I um, think that was me that said that. So, um, yeah, thanks, Cal. It. And uh, reporter, and your first proper proper uh, appearance on the podcast, Darcy Song. Hey, Darcy. Hi. Thanks for having me. There's no getting rid of me from now. <laughs> So, um, Kalila was just on holiday, uh, but Banksy and Darcy's just been us for uh, a little bit uh, towards the back end of last week. The only ones in Mumbrella HQ that haven't managed a holiday. Lucky us, hey? What do you, what do you think, Cal? Do you, get, do you get a public holiday extra down there for... for well, we Melbourne? get Cup Day in a few weeks, and uh, I'm on Friday, I'm actually... so many public holidays. I know. Well, we love our sport in Victoria, and as would be expected, everyone here takes the Monday as well. Um, but I will be taking uh, most of the day on Friday to compete in the Unlimited Basketball Tournament in Melbourne, so that's very exciting. I'm excited about that. I wish you really well in that, Cal, because I know that um, you're going to be jumping, uh, getting some baskets, I hope, on our behalf. Yeah, well, it's um, I, I'm, I'm on Team Amazon ads, so for Friday I'll be um, dropping my journalistic um, neutrality and getting on the, the Amazon bandwagon. Speaking of uh, jumping, Banksy, let's get into the first topic, which is Tourism Australia's new global campaign, Come Say Good Day, with our new jumping brand ambassador, Ruby the Kangaroo. Um, this one launches today, I guess, depending on where you are in the world, and it comes via MNC Saatchi, UM, and Digitas. I've just got a little clip of the campaign here for us to hear. G'day. Uh, where am I? Australia. And you look like you need a holiday. Show us what you got. Let's go. Welcome to the Sydney Opera House. It's remarkable. Yep, it's amazing. Whoa. I love it. What is it? A wombat. Oh. (laughs) I see kangaroos. Me too. Come on. G'day, mate. Hear that? We're mates. Kalila, a lot has been said locally about the strategy behind the campaign so far, um, especially after the initial teaser last week. We saw uh, Dizzy Gillespie have his go. Uh, what are people sort of saying about it now that we have seen the full 60-second TVC? Yeah, so um, as you mentioned, we um, did hear a bit of criticism from Dizzy Gillespie and that was on the basis uh, of his opinion and I think a few other groups' opinions that the government might have be lacking in their action on, you know, 
to stop the endangerment of kangaroos locally um, if they're going to decide to put one up as an ambassador. But that aside, um, there's been kind of mixed opinions. I think I would say largely from looking around and from speaking to a few people in the industry, this is, you know, widely kind of being lauded as textbook marketing. So the strategy... um, the strategy behind it is, you know, fairly strong. They're not taking any major risks here. Um, as we all know, it's referencing, you know, a few of the older campaigns from the 80s with Paul Hogan. There have been some pockets of criticism, um, you know, that maybe it's something that's been done before. Obviously, as I just mentioned, it does have a lot of um, references to previous works and previous campaigns by Tourism Australia. Um, so that's kind of an obvious line there. Um, there's also been comments that maybe it could have featured um, a greater range of destinations or a greater range of, um, you know, Australian isms and experiences, or maybe it's not kind of Australian enough. Um, but I guess a lot of those comments as well have come from the consumer side of things, which aren't really, you know, looking as closely um, at that strategic piece. One industry leader that I spoke to um, spoke very highly of the campaign and said it kind of ticked off uh, some of the key aspects of, you know, a traditional textbook marketing um, strategy with the nostalgia piece with that reference to the Paul Hogan campaign, as well as the remake of the Men at Work, um, Men Down, Land Down Under, <laughs> Land Down Under <laughs> track. He also mentioned that the characters Ruby and Louie made the piece really relatable and easily memorable and it kind of had a bit of a feel of the 2000s Olympics in Sydney as well, something that I don't remember but I've certainly um, learned about since. (laughs) Take their word for it. (laughs) Yeah, take their word for it. Um, As well as that, we have the celebrity appearance with Rose Byrne, obviously a very well-known Hollywood actor uh, heralding from Australia um, and then, you know, weaving in those scenery shots as well, even though there were some criticisms that maybe they could have looked at more um, different locations. Or I think we saw some comments that perhaps they could have focused more on Australia's, you know, food scene and things like that. Um, but this Well, we had the, uh, the, famous, the famous coffee culture of Melbourne, I mean, which is world-renowned. Yeah. <laughs> Melbourne, yeah. Thank God Melbourne got a shout-out, really. But I think something that um, this person mentioned as well was that they felt, unlike previous campaigns, because this is rolling out in 15 markets, you couldn't really have too many specific cultural references. So if you do look at those Paul Hogan campaigns from the from 1984, I think it was, um, obviously that's directed at an American audience. So there can be a little bit more banter. There can be a little bit more of the larrikinism. Um but because it's rolling out so broadly, I think the the thing about this spot is that it needs to be able to have that broad appeal. So by kind of keeping it in the generic stereotypes of all the fun things about Australia with, you know, the animals um, and some of the beautiful, you know, scenery that we know of and obviously our First Nations culture, um, yeah, it, it just has that mass appeal. Um I, I guess on that, speaking to um, Susan Coggill, the CMO of Tourism Australia, she did um, kind of make the point that this largely isn't 
really just for Australians, which, um, and there, there was a great line she said, she said, um, as much as I know that Australia, in Australia we have 25 million stakeholders with an opinion, the best thing we could do is focus on the international high-yielding travellers who we need to get to come to Australia and ultimately spend because that's what helps our tourism industry and what helps the economies around them and our national economy. Um, with I, I guess, as you sort of alluded to there, Kalila, the, um, the animation which uh, she mentioned works so well in Eastern markets and also then kind of using um, a character like Will Arnett, which um, is so so well known in America. To your point that you uh, made there before, Kalila, uh, this is the, the end of the campaign here with uh, Rose Byrne. <gasps> so what are you waiting for? Come and take it out. We come from a land down under. And then compare that to the original Paul Hogan. Although you lot do have a funny accent, come on, come and say good day. I'll slip an extra shrimp on the barbie for you. And then we can also draw a few similarities to the, uh, the I guess, one of the most famous Australian uh, tourism campaigns in recent memory. And we've been rehearsing for over 40,000 years. So where the bloody hell are you? Uh, the, the 2006 Where the Bloody Hell Are You campaign, which uh, finishes with uh, quite a similar soundbite from Lara Bingle. Speaking to Colgill, she also spoke about the importance of um, cutting through with this campaign in the briefing with uh, competition heating up across different markets. But uh, I guess, as always, was the aim to produce a piece of work that was unmistakably Australian uh, in- interestingly, this is the, the first major campaign since the um, much publicised pitch in 2018, which uh, appointed MNC Saatchi. The agency also previously held the account in the noughties and was responsible for that Where the Bloody Hell Are You campaign, um, which was also during Scott Morrison's tenure at uh, Tourism Australia, very famously with the agency then dropped two years later. Kalila, uh, th- th- what will Tourism Australia be hoping to get out of this campaign and I guess how important is getting the tourism economy back up and running? I think to put it lightly it's it's really important for um, the Australian economy obviously. We've heard a lot of rhetoric over the last couple of years about how much damage COVID has done for Australia. Obviously we're a huge destination for international travel and being um, an island uh, nation and, and having such strict borders really has um, put us behind, I think, when it comes to returning international travellers to our shore. People have heard, you know, stories about people not being able to get in um, during the last couple of years or so. So I think it's really, really kind of urgent that we get things back on track. Um, you know, pre-COVID numbers for tourism um, were, were on the rise for, I think, about a decade up until COVID. So um, in 2019, we had 9.4 million international visitors in Australia, which was up 2.4% from um, 9.2 million in 2018. And, I mean, tracking back to 2011, it was just below 6 million. So we're on a pretty, we we were on a pretty um, rapid growth trajectory and projections, I mean, despite, you know, the COVID break, projections are upwards of 15 million by 2026 to 2027 so they kind of would want to get the roll the ball rolling uh for reference as well 
tourism tourism contributes to 3.1% of Australian GDP, um, $63.3 billion contributed to the Australian economy. It also employs 600, this is from 2019, by the way, um, as of 2019, also the industry employed 666,000 people, which accounted for 5.2% of employment in that year. Uh, I think the, the impact of of the ad of the new campaign can't be underestimated with Susan Coghill mentioning that 800,000 tourists came to Australia from the US following the well-known Crocodile Dundee Super Bowl campaign in 2019. So something like this rolling out you know, internationally in 15 key markets for us um, could really make a big difference. Yeah, and we, we will see um, huge media spend from this campaign. It's quoted to be worth um, $125 million in total. Um, you, you mentioned there the US um, just under 800000 in 2019, but visitors from the US totaled um, a, a spend of $3.9 billion in that year. Um which is, I guess, larger than New Zealand, which was the equal first visitor with 1.3 million visitors in that year, while China also uh, totaled 1.3 million um, Australians. But that that spend was far greater with 12.4 billion. So it kind of shows you which are the key markets there they'll be targeting. Uh, Anyway, moving on to the next topic, we are going to talk about the latest updates in the ACCC's digital platforms inquiry. Darcy, you reported on this on Tuesday. The latest in the digital platforms inquiry has seen rapidly growing platform TikTok brought into the fold as Meta's attempted to claim that its market share, which was found in 2019 as having significant market power over its social media rivals, has since been eaten up in parts by TikTok, amongst others. The documents have also shown Nine weighing in, adding that YouTube and TikTok should be brought into the news media bargaining code. Can you summarize what Nine's argument was here, Darcy, and also what uh, Meta is claiming about its position? So the inquiry intends to cover a lot of ground. So from Nine's perspective, the company said that Meta, YouTube and TikTok are all unavoidable business partners for them at this stage. But the network also said that social media environment has changed since 2019 and that it's not fair now to only subject big omnipresent platforms like Google and Meta to the news bargaining code, but also, as you mentioned, include TikTok and YouTube with their popularity, especially among younger users for accessing these content. So that sort of aligns with Meta's argument that TikTok is a significant market player because Meta is really trying to wriggle out of that dominant market position that it keeps being put in. Uh, for other parties like Free TV, which represents seven, ten, and some regional networks alongside Nine, it's said that not only other platforms have significantly lower number, but also cannot substitute what Meta services have to offer. So ACCC shouldn't really shift its focus too far away from the company. Um, and, and now Nine obviously has its um, reasons to be arguing alongside Method that TikTok has a significant presence in market um, after there was a reported $35 million boost from payments via 
Google and Meta in Nine's annual report this year. Um, what's TikTok's response been, Darcy? They're essentially trying to play down their influence and, I guess, status as a social media pl- platform. Is that right? Yeah. So from what we've said before, we can tell what happens when you're recognized as a major market force, and that is nothing good, <laughs> apparently. TikTok's first main argument is reiterating it's sort of like a challenger position in a competitive market, suggesting that more established platforms like Meta has market power across bigger app ecosystems and are leveraging new services in a capacity that TikTok doesn't have. It's also trying to interestingly make a distinction between social media service provider and itself, um, which TikTok says that it's an entertainment content platform. But, you know, some have said that TikTok now have as many as 7.4 million Australian users over 18 and traffic to its ad portal is almost three times the traffic to Twitter's. So, yeah, it's really up to you to interpret that stance that TikTok is trying to make. Sticking with Nine, um, the the company is pulling its print product out of Tasmania as it's set to stop printing hard copies of The Age and the AFR for um, all of our friends across the Tasman. Um, Nine has said that due to rising paper costs, um, that being with their, uh, there's only one paper mill left in Australia, which is uh, actually located in Tasmania. It's become uneconomic to keep, I guess, funneling money into the printed product uh, with ACM shifting its increased costs across to the company. This is really going to start to hit local titles, Banksy um, that obviously can't eat the cost as Nine can in major metro markets. Is it essentially a sign that the the end is nigh for print outside of those markets in Australia? Look, Cal, it's not it's not great. I mean, I think we all know that print newspapers has been in steady decline for years. But I mean, we did get some recent numbers from the. Um, digital news report of 2022 that was by the news and media research center it was actually saying that consumption of news in print has increased for the first time in six years that's mainly largely in regional and rural areas and it doesn't really have impact it seemed to have impacted the state of tassie uh, especially for nine and its decision today to to pull the plug on the age and the fin there um so I, i had a bit of a dig around i i think we should just take a look at total news readership figures that are produced by Roy Morgan for Think News Brands. They show print news at 13 million, which is down 7% on the same period last year. The most read titles are the SMH um, with 8.4 million a month. That is down 1.8%. The age and the AFR were at 6.1 million and 3.5 million respectively. They're tracking up. Um, AFR was up 6.7%, um, which is significant. Um, but I guess if 90 million people consume the news each week, uh, where are they going? Um, I had a look at that. I think Think News Brands breaks it down as Facebook, uh, 17 million, Radio, 16 million, SVOD, 16 million, YouTube, 15 million. Um, I guess the other factors to consider are that Total annual growth in news readership grew 0.8% compared to last year with digital news outperforming at 3.1%. But significantly, Tasmania is down 0.4% overall, which is is pretty poor. Uh, I think with regards specifically to the age and the AFR, 
most of the ages readers, and we're talking about 88% of this, um, they consume their news online. Uh, the age, uh, sorry, saw an increase of 8% in readers under 35. Uh, Tassie has a lower prop population of people aged 20 to 44 than Australia as a whole. So that's another factor. Interestingly, um, Crikey is saying that Nine releases sporadic figures which suggest combined print and digital subscriptions of about 500,000 for its three mastheads overall. Um, so really the, the Roy Morgan figures, while, while significant and interesting, may not necessarily reflect the, the actual uh, truth of what's going on in print. And also we do, we do have indication that Labor has committed $15 million to help newspaper publishers absorb the rising cost of newsprint, but that funding's not available yet and details of eligibility are still being finalised. So at this stage, the rising costs could be um, really the death knell for, for print newspapers in Australia, Cal. Yeah, and, uh, you know, you kind of mentioned that that total figure there of uh, around 500000 if you think about without a localised service, in uh, Tasmania and I, I guess quite a few local titles there to the Mercury, the Examiner, um, the Advocate, the, you imagine that figure as we've kind of got the indication from nine was quite small already. Yeah, I think they did say that the numbers were like 76% of Australians still do not pay for news. Um, so you've, you've got that amount of people just not into paywalls and, and actually paying for journalism, which, which you know, as a journalist myself, I find that uh, disappointing. I think, I think we should actually um, contribute to, to good journalism in Australia. And then finally, um, what will be for the next few weeks a busy time for agencies with uh, Christmas campaigns beginning to launch, a number of pitches still to land. Um, there has already been quite a few moves in the last few weeks, Kalila, um, already in the month of October. Would you be able to run us through a few of those ones there? Yeah, it's been a busy couple of weeks while I've been away on leave, um, as I found out. Um, so just this week, we've reported that Snooze has moved its media to Match and Wood um, after 14 years with Starcom. And this comes... Um, after fellow Starcom, former Starcom clients, Seek um, shifted its media to UM and Aware Super moved to Atomic 212. Um, also this week, Hearts and Sciences landed CB Co um, account, which was formerly Colonial Brewing Company. They just recently rebranded after a couple of years of backlash um, based on, you know, um, political issues with their name. We also saw this month Zenith retain Aldi um, initiative, also One Energy Australia. Um, we're still waiting to see who's going to pick up the creative account for Energy Australia as well. Um, on top of that, Noisy Beast, One Cobram Estates Media and Social and Four Pines Brewing Company um, has also appointed 72 and Sunny as its creative partner. So there's a lot going on um, and I'm sure we can probably expect, expect more to come in the coming weeks as well because it is that time of year. Yeah, um, still waiting on a few as well. Interestingly, there are um, three pitches on going for Entain Australia, which houses uh, Ned's and Ladbroke's betting houses, NIB and Lint, all of which the incumbent is Essence. Uh, interestingly, 
um, ahead of its formalization of the merger between Essence and Mediacom. So that'll be interesting to see how that plays out in the coming months because those three that I mentioned there um, had come in originally from Icon, which was uh, three agencies ago now. Essence has opted out in the case of Lint due to a conflict with Mars, which is an ex- existing Mediacom client. Um, so yeah, whether or not um, we see more down that same avenue in future will be one to look out for. As Group M did say at the time, there were very few conflicts within that merger. Coming up next, Salter Baxter Global MD, Kathleen Enright and local CEO, Sky Lambley. Sky Lambley, CEO of Publicis's creative sustainability consultancy, Salto Baxter in Australia, and Kathleen Enright, Global MD. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you so much. Great to be here. How are you both? And uh, I should also mention, Sky, you are the CEO of Herd MSL here in Australia as well. I am. Yep, no, very <laughs> well. Thank you. Very well. And Kathleen, you're joining us locally over from the UK for the week. I know, and I've managed to beat the jet lag so far. So day two. <laughs> I'm very well. Well, um, Salter Baxter launched around two months ago now in Australia. It's been almost 25 years since its, um, since its launch in the UK and now with offices across the globe. Um, first of all, I'm not, not sure which of you wants to field this one. Um, why has it taken so long? <laughs> <laughs> That's a, look, it's a very good question. I mean, I, I could just jump in to say that I think the time is right now and I think that just from our conversations I was having with Kathleen after some of her uh, chats that she's been having over the last two days while in Oz, it does seem like a really good time for us to bring this offering to this market. Uh, it sounds like organisations are really ready to act um, and make some very ambitious business transformation plans, I suppose, which sustainability should be at the heart of. So in terms of timing, I think it couldn't be a better time. So, Kathleen, it would be great um, for you just to, I guess, give us a little more insight or explain a little bit further who Salter Baxter is and, I guess, um, what that sort of initial foundation 25 years ago was and how that's developed to, to date. Yeah, sure. So, Salter Baxter is a, for lack of a better term, a creative consultancy. So, we bring together deep technical thinking on sustainability with with creativity. So, we often talk about credibility and creativity. Um, And that's really, really important because we haven't got that much time left to affect change. And so, the strategies and the ambitions that are set in place, they really have to inspire action and they have to deliver returns and they have to get people excited. And so there is a real need for a new way to approach sustainability that is really engaging, but also really, really credible. And so that's what Salter Baxter has been doing. And we've done that on multiple fronts. We've evolved the reporting landscape and what strategies should look like. And then also what engagement and creative content around sustainability should look like and how we should measure success. Because I think the success of all of this is only measured um, by how much progress we can drive in the world and and how we can set businesses on a path to sustainable growth. So we have worked tirelessly for 25 years to to really get that going. I've been with Salter Baxter for six years. And in those six years, I've, I've been amazed how every year we've come at it and pushed our clients harder and up the game and really kind of 
been more ambitious in what we're trying to get clients to do and what we're working on together. And it's it's been great. So I'm excited for the future as well, because I think there's, you know, new things to achieve. And in in terms of um, the local context of it here, Sky, what, what do you think has sort of traditionally been the struggle for brands to sort of properly bed in sustainability to its corporate and business strategies? And I guess on the same note, what how Salterbaxter can can really get into the market here and help? Yeah, I think that there's probably been a lack of drive to be able to make real change. Like no one's been, I mean, Australia generally haven't been driving in a, a sustainable agenda from whether it's government policy perspective or whether it's, um, you know, individual brands. And I think what we're starting to see is the importance for a whole host of reasons for us to make sure that we are driving this progress locally. Uh, I think some of the barriers have been probably ap largely appetite because there hasn't been any of that um, drive or external factors. But I think that a lot of organisations are seeing uh, everything from talent to uh, consumer demand to now a new government really stepping up in terms of what's expected, which we will see more, um, you know, regulations and and um, and guidelines, I suppose, that are, are driving that. So everything from consumers to acquiring talent, so people wanting to to work for organisations that are driving a sustainable agenda or to, to work um, and operate sustainably uh, right through to government is, what, is what's making that possible now. So, yeah, I think that they're probably the key drivers. I don't know, Kathleen, if you've seen anything else from your conversations locally that is different from perhaps other areas of the world? No, I think it's the fact that all of those forces have come together. We've had different pressure points at different times over the last 10 years, and it's been very hard to move things forward. Whereas I think what we're seeing now is all of those pressure points converging. And then also legislation, critical stakeholders, citizens converging. And, you know, we are also seeing a new generation of CEO leadership. And that's really, really important. This is a topic that has to be led both from the top down and the bottom up. So we've got the perfect storm in a way, and climate change feels very, very real now. Yeah, uh, I guess you, you're over here this week, Kathleen. You're in market. You're speaking to brands. What's the sort of um, what's the starting point for these conversations? Because you know it can be quite a tricky one for a lot of brands who, you know, various different approaches or stages on that sustainability journey. Um. I think there are a couple of common starting points. Um, I think there is so much desire to be moving the sustainability agenda forward. So I think, you know, there is a common base and a common desire to act. And then so many of the challenges are the same that we see globally. It's how do we get around the narrative that it takes so much investment and it's a longer return. Um, and so to that, we have conversations around the fact that we need to be assessing risk differently and we need to be looking at the cost of inaction rather than the cost of kind of an investment cost. Um, we see uh, a lot of businesses saying that they've done the basics on sustainability and they're not getting any return from it. Or they're not seeing any difference from a brand perspective or from an innovation or a growth perspective. And I think that's where Salter Baxter comes in. So we are trying to do sustainability quite differently and really say your sustainability strategy has to be inspiring, has to be differentiated so that it brings the business along and is going to drive innovation and drive growth. So um, those would be two common starting points. The other starting point I think is, is just that sustainability can feel quite overwhelming. And where do you start on such a big topic? Uh, so we recently launched a tool to help businesses pilot kind of 
where to lean into. And so we've been having conversations around progress point as well. And that's why we developed progress point was really to help people get going, but to get going on fewer things in a more transformational way, rather than just trying to do everything at once and doing a little bit of everything. Sky, what do you think, I guess, some of those main challenges that you've found uh, since taking on the remit here um, have been in terms of some of the brands here differentiating, as as you sort of touched on there, Kathleen, between maybe just some of these entry-level green initiatives and then, I guess, also proving from the top to the bottom how it can actually impact your company? I think um, part of that challenge is around accountability for sustainability within an organisation. So I think that at the what we're finding through the conversations we're having with with local clients is it sits at all different places within within a business, and so therefore the influence that it has in the business is quite different. Um, everything from you know I, I think quite sophisticated um, sustainability strategy sitting with a chief sustainability officer who has the ear very connected ear to a, a CEO that that mm-hmm. has influence to drive that at a business strategy level. But then others, it might be somebody that doesn't necessarily have a, back, a, a deep background in sustainability potentially, or perhaps sits within a different area of the business, which has less influence. So I think we're seeing quite varied degrees. But as we sort of mentioned before, I do think that, um, and perhaps through the surprise, you know, surprise uh, that surprised Kathleen was that there is generally um, a level of speed and ambition that is um, that is being noticed by local organisations in terms of the importance of sustainability. And I think that that the appetite to act um, and to do that in a really strategic, um, you know, senior level within a business is is something that we're seeing more and more, and, and that has probably surprised us in the in the conversations actually. And in, in terms of since the launch, how, how, how is it going locally? What, what's the sort of strategy in terms of, for example, the meetings you've got this week, Kathleen? Is it outreach at all from Salter Baxter or is it only sort of um, a pr- purely approach only? We've had, oh, I think sorry. it's been – oh, no, go for it, Sky. I was going to say it's, it's it's been a mix of both. I think we did um, – we had a really interesting launch. We had a great panel discussion um, that really set the tone. So – um, when we launched in the summer, we had a panel discussion on progress point and the need for business transformation. And that's really what's reflected in market. Um, so we sent out a strong signal to market and then the team have been doing an amazing job of connecting the dots and leveraging existing relationships and existing clients. I was just going to say, we, you know, one thing we wanted to do differently in this market, there's plenty of um, communications agencies in this market that are launching sustainability practices. Um, and what we wanted to do is to differentiate ourselves in terms of the offer that we were having and actually drive real progress. And to do that, we did feel that that, that combination of um, creative communications and, and creative activation, I suppose, of these uh, ideas around sustainability is critical and something that we have a long heritage in the work that we've done with um, our existing clients on more of the PR and integrated comms front. But I think what we're hoping to do and what we've started to do, I suppose, with some of those engagements we've had is to engage clients at that strategic level and provide them with deep sustainability expertise that provides high-level consultancy that does map into a business's strategy. And I think that's where we're seeing a lot of traction because clients are at different um, stages, I suppose, of their sustainability journey and being able to have that full um, gamut of services and offering and capability 
whether that is locally or in combination with our Centre of Excellence team out of the UK, is what we're finding has really set us apart from from others that are kind of, I suppose, for want of a better term, putting lipstick on a pig, which is, you know, creating sustainability initiatives, um, which perhaps are a little bit vacuous and meaningless, where um, we really do want to make progress to for the planet, I suppose, which is which is big and it's lofty, but that, that's our aim. Yeah, and, and you mentioned it there, um, the, the point about progress, Kathleen, you mentioned it, uh, touched on it before. You're always going to have uh, marketing departments or brands that are immediately looking for, I guess, return of investment or results on what they're doing here. Is there a certain way that you've, I guess, mapped out that you can, you can prove to these brands the progress that is being made and kind of, you know, in the meantime, some of the more uh, maybe hesitant ones convince them to carry on? Yeah, I think when when we're doing sustainability and really in, in, in the way that we've described in terms of bringing together creativity and credibility, we're really seeing an impact in market, whether that's in terms of brand love or reputation. Progress Point also tracks reputation and actually, interestingly, one of the strongest drivers of reputation is the quality and ambition of the sustainability strategy. So I think the world around us has drastically changed as well. I don't think that would have been true five years ago. Um, so I think we've got we've got that happening. And then I think we also have employee activism and citizens really getting wise to the climate agenda. And so there's there's a combination of factors that that mean that um, brands are under more scrutiny to get things right but they're also being rewarded when they're doing things properly and by properly I mean really really looking at how brand and product and marketing initiatives sit within the wider corporate strategy and then sit at the intersection of their material issues and their brand values rather than just being opportunistic and say I'm going to jump on this thing over here or I'm going to do a pilot project over here. And correct me if I'm wrong, Kathleen. You've said before that you you want to avoid the S word. Is that right? And uh, and why is that? Uh, I just uh, I think you know it's it's funny. There's a whole debate in the market at the moment about ESG versus sustainability. And uh, you've got the people arguing that ESG is an easy terminology, and everyone's captured you know latched onto it because it is easy. Um, but it's quite reductive of the bigger sustainability agenda. But for me, the sustainability in itself is reductive of the wider business transformation agenda. Um, and I think, you know, this is this is the biggest challenge any of us will face in our lifetimes. We have to be playing it out in our day jobs. And so, um, yeah, I don't particularly like the S word because I think it's it's got bad rep in terms of negatives and um having less of something, whereas I think actually the massive positive in business transformation and showing what humanity can do and living differently um, is much more exciting. <laughs> and and, and Skye, uh, as we sort of mentioned at the top, um, you this isn't your only role. Um, it would be great to hear from your perspective how, I guess, the, 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 the two plates that you're spinning um, sort of inform each other and how you can, I guess, use them to best practice in market here? Yeah, for sure. I think it may, to, to, to what I was sort of alluding to before, there is a lot of client work that we currently do or engage with where we're working with them to creatively bring to life some of their um, sustainability initiatives. 
and that's going to be work that we um, continue to do. But I think where 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 there is an opportunity for us to be more impactful and to drive strategy and have a bigger conversation around those you know ambitious business transformation um, as it relates to sustainability, and I would suggest that they all should relate to sustainability. Um, that is where we would bring in the expertise of um, the likes of my colleagues here locally and Kathleen in the Centre of Excellence. And so I think that they really, also the points that Kathleen was making before about the importance of sustainability on a business's reputation, they go absolutely hand in hand. But I don't want to um, undersell the expertise that is required to do this properly. And that does not sit in the herd MSL. So, you know, that business consulting and deep sustainability expertise um, is not something that herd MSL currently do. That is why we brought Salter Baxter and we are doing the model that we're doing, which is, um, you know, hiring locally some, some expertise in that consulting space, but heavily relying at the moment on the 25 years of experience of the Salter Baxter team in the UK to be able to offer that strategic advice. Um, so yeah, there's definitely crossovers when it comes to reputation, communication, creativity, but there is definitely a differentiation between um, that and the expertise required at that strategic level that is um, that, that needs to speak to that 25 years experience. And, and Kathleen, it would be great to get from your perspective, any, I guess, case studies or um, examples of brands who have sort of on a, on a maybe local in the UK or one that you've worked with on a, or on a global scale that have sort of really effectively transformed that strategy beyond, you know, just a few of those initiatives? Um, I, think, I think no one's doing everything. So I think we're still at the stage where we're seeing different businesses excelling in different areas. And we have some businesses um, where we've got the CEOs using a language of urgency um, and that's setting the tone for the business. And that's a massive positive. It's one of the things we measure in progress point. We've got other businesses um, really stepping up in terms of like bold partnerships and, and you know, how, how that plays out. Um, so I don't think anyone is doing everything. I think yeah. there are sectors that are moving faster than others. And I think it's really interesting to see that play that play out. So Apparel and fast fashion is a sector we work a lot with, um, and that's going through an accelerated pace of change at the moment. And that's legislative; it's consumer pressure. This is really exciting. You know, how do you square a fast fashion business model with living sustainably? The fact that we're asking these questions is super exciting. And then I think, from a UK perspective, but also globally, I think you know the cost of living crisis is super interesting. It's going to force a sustainability debate to be about the true cost of things. And would you know what? If plastic packaging costs too much, then that's a good thing. And we've seen value-based retailers move to refills with a narrative around maintaining cost for consumers. So it's it's really exciting. And I think you know what we need to see more of is. We've tried this and it didn't work. Here are our learnings. Someone else go run with this. So what we have in sustainability until now is this kind of, I've done really well um, and really kind of a lot of achievement announcements. And what we don't have enough of is, guys, is anyone else really struggling with this and not meeting their commitments? And so that's part of what we're trying to do as well is bring our clients together to have those conversations. Yeah. And then um, j just finally, Kathleen, you were recently in New York for the uh, World Benchmarking Alliance Active, uh, sorry, 
action <laughs> it's forum. <laughs> it's a bit of a mouthful. Um, if was there was there anything from that that you sort of stood out for you that I guess is going to inform what what you're doing with Salter Baxter going forward? Um, there was there was so much. So we were we were really fortunate to be part of a couple of working sessions looking at the role of corporates in delivering against the sustainable development goals. Um, so I think you know there's going to be increased scrutiny on business to deliver against the sustainable development goals. I think we'll see so much of that coming out of COP27. I think in terms of the the takeouts and how we're driving that forward is um, I suppose to the last point I was making a lot of the conversation was about. Um, accountability, but then, you know, everybody loves accountability, but nobody wants to be held accountable is roughly (laughs) where we're at. So I think there were some really interesting conversations about taking the heat out of accountability. How do we create a safe space for business to be able to say, you know, this isn't working and not just to have positive reporting against the SDGs, but also um, where where businesses are failing. So I think that's really, really interesting from a stakeholder perspective, from a corporate comms perspective, from a reporting perspective. You know, how do we how do we help businesses on that journey to to more transparency? Um, so that's a key takeout. I think the other thing that's been really, really interesting is is the conversation around greenwashing and, and how we're going to see a shift in what constitutes greenwashing and how that's going to be legislated. So um, in very simplistic terms, we've had greenwashing to date, which has been a problem for marketeers and um, commerce professionals. And it's really been linked to kind of product and and brand claims. Um, We're seeing the evolution of greenwashing to non-disclosure of embedded risk. So where a business knows that they have going to have issues in the future linked to sustainability, but they're not talking about it. So that's huge in terms of greenwashing shifting to being a business problem, to linking to how companies are seeing risk and then to being linked to investor backing. Um, so I think, you know, what we're trying to do from a Salter Baxter perspective is keep all of this simple for clients as well. It's so much to manage. And, and that's, you know, where Progress Point comes in as well. How do we help our clients steer a path through all of this, um, help them be aware of all of this, but not feel overwhelmed by it all. And of course, that's got uh, added context here locally as well with news that the uh, ACCC are also reviewing that definition locally. Um, well, Sky and Kathleen, really appreciate you both joining me today and um, great to catch you. Likewise. And that is it for this week. Remember to hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to us. And if you like what you're hearing, please do give us a review. But for now, uh, thank you, Banksy. Thank you, Darcy. And thank you, Kalila. Thank you. Thanks, team. Thank you. Good to be back. And you're good to have you back. And also thanks to Sky and Kathleen. But for now, we'll see you next week.